when you read the New Testament, you can sometimes come away with the impression that it tells the stories of mainly men, because it does tell the stories of men. I mean, Jesus was a man. The apostles were men, and of them, Peter and John and Paul were some main players for sure. But while that is true, when you read carefully, you see that women are definitely not absent or unimportant. When you read carefully, it becomes obvious that the story of the gospel and how it spread across the Roman world can't be told without the stories of some of these women, because they were instrumental agents in the spread of the message of Jesus and the birth of the church. Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, the group is going to focus on one of these women of significance in the early church. Her name is Lydia. And so how her story is part of the Jesus story is what we'll discover on this Discover the Word. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry. And uh, Bill is leading a study that will include Mart and Elisa and Daniel, a study of Acts chapter 16, and a woman mentioned in that chapter by the name of Lydia. Now that is not the only place her name comes up, but Acts chapter 16 is where we get a lot of her story. That allows us to piece together how significant her influence was on one of the churches that Paul and Silas set up in the city of Philippi. It's a multi-layered and really interesting story that we'll spend the next hour or so working through. And will I think challenge our thinking on a number of different levels. So pull your chair up to the table and let's listen as Bill spends most of the first part of the study helping us build the backstory and the context to this study that's simply called Lydia. Recently, there have been a lot of conversations about the anniversary of the establishment of Title IX. Who can tell us a little bit about what Title IX refers to? It has something to do with women in sports. Yeah, it was a law that was actually passed to equalize opportunities between women and men in sports, especially in collegiate sports, because men had a disproportionate amount of opportunities to women athletes, and they were trying to level, literally level the playing field, if you will. Mm. And it's just an example of things that have been done in my lifetime to give women more opportunities in different aspects of life. And that's very different from the Bible times, isn't it? It sure is. What would be the expectations of an average woman in the Bible times? Okay, so you're talking about the average woman, right? Because there really are standouts in sure. both Old and New Testament, a very significant women who rose to real positions of influence. Yeah, for example, give us some names. Well, you've got Miriam, who mm-hmm. led, but you also got the judge. Deborah. Deborah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Deborah. Mm-hmm. And Esther yeah. and Ruth. We can go on and on here. Hannah, Elizabeth, there's Eve. There are lots of women in Scripture, but I think what you're talking about, Bill, is the patriarchal culture that really confined women in terms mm-hmm. of investing their influence into the realm of home, wife, mother, and then if that didn't happen, religious devotion slash widowhood. It was different. The, the ones we've just cited were very much the exception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you compare male heroes in the Bible with female heroes in the Bible, there's a huge gap in the numbers, not only the numbers, but also there are a number of significant women in the Bible whose names we aren't even told. And so as we begin this week of conversations, we're going to be looking at a woman who takes on a very significant role in the early New Testament church. And not only do we have her, but we have her name. And I think because so many times women are left unnamed in scriptures, when we do have one who's named, I think that adds a little bit of clout to her influence and her reputation because her name is given to us. So we're going to look at this woman and her name is Lydia and her story is found in Acts chapter 16. So just to kind of set the context, at the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas split apart as a missions team. And Paul takes Silas and they collect Timothy in the early part of chapter 16 and begin yet another missionary journey for Paul. And as they're going, something really interesting happens in verse 6. 
If somebody could read verse 6 of Acts 16, this just strikes me as such an odd verse. And I'd like for us to think about it for a minute. Acts 16, verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, does that seem odd to you? I mean, (laughs) here you have this team whose role and function and calling is to present the message of Jesus wherever they go, but yet while they're traveling through Asia, and by the way, this is referring to Asia Minor, what in modern days we would call Turkey, uh, as they're traveling from east to west across Asia Minor, they are forbidden to do the very thing that they're out there to do. Now, Mm. how does that strike you? Odd. (laughs) Very odd. And the language is strong, forbidden Mm. by the Holy Spirit. It's not Mm -hmm. like, hey, they thought it wasn't a good idea or for safety reasons they decided not to do this or something like that. I mean, it's literally forbidden by God, the Holy Spirit, not to do this. Yeah, I almost picture a detour or a, a train crossing, you know, fence coming down in front of you. You're not allowed. There's no way through. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting statement because what happens is that as they aren't stopping to speak, they keep being pushed west. And finally, they come to the coast to a place called Troas. And it's there that Paul receives what's called the Macedonian vision. What was that all about? This is in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So this is called the Macedonian vision because it's a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Macedonia at that time was the northern part of Greece, and it was the homeland of one of the most important and strategic figures in ancient history, and that's Philip of Macedon, from which we get Macedonia, Philip of Macedon. And they're going to come to the city of Philippi in Macedonia. Philip was a great leader. His son was Alexander the Great, who had conquered most of the known world by the time he was about 30 years old, which Mm. is extraordinary. So he gets this vision of a man in Macedonia asking him to come over and help us. Now, is there anything about that Macedonian vision that strikes you as interesting or unusual? Sounds like a dream. I don't know if a vision, does it necessarily happen during the night or could it happen during the day? But it sounds like a dream. And you know, when we have a dream, we take it as a dream, yeah. not necessarily as marching orders, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just so that we're clear, it does say in verse 9 that this appeared to him at night. So it may have been in the form of a dream, Mark, just like you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think what's jumping out to me in this whole section is they tried to go this way. The Holy Spirit forbid them from doing that. They tried to go this way, verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. Mm. Then this vision shows up, and as a result of that, it convinces them they're supposed to be over here instead in Macedonia. What I get from that is regardless of maybe what the vision was or what it means to be forbidden by the Spirit or prevented by the Spirit, that we get this sense of God directing their steps in a certain way, which is interesting, right? Because we would think of like Paul and Silas and them as making good decisions about where to go, but it's very clear that they're trying this and God says this way instead, and they try this and God says this way. So we get this like God directing their steps movement through this section of Feels very familiar, doesn't it? That's the clarity. You know, it's easy though to get hung up over the question, well, how in the world did the Holy Spirit forbid them, you know? Yeah, and forbidden is such a strong word that I wonder though what they were feeling in the moment, if it was actually like, oh, the Holy Spirit's forbidding us to go here. Or if as they were pulling these stories together later to compile the book of Acts, uh, which we think Luke might have been the detailed person that compiled these stories, I wonder if as he's reflecting with these people about these stories later is when they look back and say, yeah, in the moment we were just thinking like, hey, we want to do ministry here, but nothing seems to be happening. And then we went here and tried ministry and that didn't work. Then we got this vision and went over here and then things started to happen. It was like, oh, God was the one that was preventing ministry from taking off here and there. And so we see a word like forbidden and think of this like strong, you know, Mm -hmm. act of God to keep them from doing it. But maybe in the the moment, it was just a bunch of frustration of why isn't this working? And then looking (laughs) back, they realize, oh, because God wanted us to end up here 
talking with Lydia. Boy, I think that makes sense. Yeah. And often we don't understand until yeah. way down the road and looking yeah. in the rearview mirror, right? Right. Yep. But whatever the Holy Spirit was doing, and then, as you said, Daniel, the Spirit of Jesus was doing to forbid them from speaking, verse 10 is a real turnaround. Daniel, would you read verse 10 for us? When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. This becomes a turning point in human history because for the first time, the gospel is going to travel to the shores of Europe, Greece being Europe and Turkey being Asia. So now we have European people being influenced by the message of the gospel. And even though God had forbidden them to speak in Turkey and the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus had forbidden them to speak in Galatia and all those different places, now they're convinced God has been pushing them to get them over there into Macedonia to present the gospel there. When they get there, they come to Philippi, which was a Roman colony, and they stayed there some days. And on the Sabbath, they went outside the gate to a riverside looking for a place of prayer. Now, what was going on here is that in ancient times, if there were 10 Jewish men who were the heads of households, they would establish a synagogue. If there weren't 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue, they would have a a meeting place by running water under the open sky where the followers of Jehovah would meet together for times of worship on the Sabbath. That's what they're looking for. So apparently there's not a synagogue in Philippi, because Paul usually started his preaching trips by going to a synagogue and preaching the gospel and then getting kicked out and starting a church. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's no synagogue to start with, so the second course is to go to a place of prayer by a riverside, and that's where they come to verse 14. Mark, could you read verse 14 to us? One of them, one of the women who was there, was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted Mm. what Paul was saying. Okay, so to set that up, verse 13 says, they found a place of prayer, and there were some women who were assembled there. It doesn't say there were any men there, but there were some women there who were assembled. And one of the things I find really ironic about this is that in the Macedonian vision, it was a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. But their first meaningful spiritual encounters are with a group of women, especially the woman that we're going to focus on, Lydia, the seller of purple cloth. So as we move further into our conversations, I want us to pay attention to how the Lord works in her heart what her background is, how the Lord had prepared her for this moment, and just see what God was doing in her life to help her become a woman of great influence in the city of Philippi as a new believer in Jesus. Yeah, it is amazing when you look at all the pre-work that God did to get all of them to Philippi and then have their paths cross down at the river. And there are lots of these instances where we'll see God at work as we continue to walk through Acts chapter 16 and the story of Lydia. Because have you ever paused to think about how seemingly random events have shaped your journey through life? I mean, a chance meeting with someone turned into a lifelong relationship. A casual conversation with someone you didn't really even know all that well turned into a job. Yeah, our lives really are shaped by those so-called random events, or are they really random? Christian author and missionary Oswald Chambers offered this perspective when he wrote, never believe that the so-called random events of life are anything less than God's appointed order. Be ready to discover his divine designs anywhere and everywhere. Well, in the next segment of this Discover the Word podcast, The group is going to look at some random events in the life of Lydia that were part of her coming to believe in Jesus and put her in a place to influence the growth of the early church. Random events or God's design? We'll have that conversation after this about another podcast, a podcast for women from Our Daily Bread Ministries that Elisa is part of. 
I'm Elisa Morgan. And I'm Erin Eddy. And we are your hosts of the podcast, God Hears Her. And we're curious, do you find yourself seeking community and wanting to hear stories that you can relate to? Do you seek a place where you feel heard and seen and loved? The mission of God Hears Her is to make you feel seen, heard, and loved by God through our conversations on the show. We've had many guests share their experiences with us, like Ellie Holcomb, Vivian Mabuni, and Tony Collier. My power is made perfect in your weakness, but it's the response that we get to have to that truth. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power will rest on me. We've also had many people talk with us about topics ranging from mental health, unexpected life situations, marriage, and parenting. And we'd love to go deeper with each other. Every conversation is God-led and impactful. What I really, really learned with my brother was it wasn't about the amount of time that you had on the earth, but it was the amount of people that you impacted in that Mm -hmm. time. Because we had hundreds of people show up to his funeral because they were like, I was so impacted and he couldn't even speak. I think that people can hear a conversation like this and they can say like, oh, she's a saint. Oh, that's so different from me. Or, oh, thank God, God hasn't called me to that. We're adding lots of new content. Recently, we did a Q&A, and we had our special 100th episode. There's so much more to look forward to that's coming. Take a look at our episodes and join us for more. Our podcast is available anywhere you can get your podcasts. Make sure to follow the show so you don't miss any episodes. And remember, you are seen, heard, and loved by our God. And now back to the table to learn more about this successful businesswoman from the first century in Philippi. Lydia. There are 328 women billionaires in the world, (laughs) according to Barron's Magazine. And you know all of them, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure I don't know any of them. (laughs) Most of those women billionaires inherited their wealth. Women like, for example, Alice Walton, the wife of Sam Walton, who started the Walmart empire. Francoise Betancourt Myers, who's worth $71 was the heiress of the L'Oreal Cosmetic Company. The first self-made woman billionaire didn't come around until 2000, and that was Martha Stewart, Uh which is really kind of interesting. And um, again, we talked in our first conversation about how women have more opportunities today, especially in the business world, than they did in ancient times. But I bring up all of these women billionaires and business people and so forth Because we're looking this week at a woman business person from ancient times, a woman named Lydia. And we're in Acts chapter 16. Mark, would you read Acts 16 verse 14 for us again? One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. So that's a tiny little fragment of information that we're going to try to dive into and see what it can tell us about her as a person. The first thing we're given is her name, and her name is Lydia, right? Mm -hmm. And some scholars think that that actually wasn't her name, that she was just the Lydian or the Lydian lady, because Thyatira, the city from which she came, is a city in the province of Lydia. And so they think maybe she was just the Lydian lady. And if that's the case, then we really don't even have her name. Like you would say the French woman or or the American woman. Yeah, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. now what we know about Thyatira is that it's a place that's mentioned later in the New Testament because something significant happens on behalf of Thyatira, doesn't it? Are you talking about in the book of Revelation? Yeah. Are you talking about in the seven letters that were written to the seven churches in Asia? One's to Thyatira, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So here you have Lydia, who's from Thyatira, and she's now in Philippi. Both of those would be considered pagan cities committed to pagan gods, and yet both of those would become hubs of Christian activity in the first century world, which is really kind of interesting because Christianity and the gospel was a minority voice in ancient Rome. And so to have these two very principal cities become centers of activity for the gospel, I think is very interesting. And it says something about what was going on in that movement of the gospel during the first century. Well, especially because it's by a minority voice in terms of a woman, her influence is Mm -hmm. also a minority. That really jumps out in this whole story because Paul 
went out of the city to find a group of men to potentially pray with (laughs) based on what Bill was saying last time about looking for a gathering of Jewish men for prayer. And what they find, at least as far as we know, is only women (laughs) in this Mm -hmm. space. And so she's one of those. And so Mm -hmm. that whole thing pops out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I know we want to get into what happened with Lydia, but I am struck in our conversation. If I was listening to this, I might be going... (sighs) why didn't women have more of a voice? And, you know, why don't we see more of them in the Old and New Testament? And why didn't she have a name? And, you know, all of these things. We've got Paul's name. And and I can get stuck on that and the mm-hmm. apparent surface injustice or exclusion. Or I can go, wait a minute. This story, this historical account is intentionally placed here in the record of the early church in order to underline that Jesus included women, that the gospel mm-hmm. includes women. And let's sit on that. It's revolutionary, and we yeah. don't want to lose that. Yeah, and I think that's why looking at her life in this series of conversations, or at least what we're given of it in the book of Acts, I think is such a valuable exercise because it really does open doors in ways that would have been very unusual in the ancient world. And there's great value in that. Now, she comes from Lydia. Lydia was the richest and most prosperous part of Western Asia Minor. And the city of Thyatira was well known for its trade guilds, particularly the trade guilds that worked in dyeing cloth. So the impression that scholars get from all of that when you piece it together is that apparently because things were more conservative in Western Turkey or Asia Minor and women didn't have the same freedoms and opportunities they did in Greece, which was a little bit more open. Perhaps Lydia left there, brought her skills and her business to Greece to try to expand her opportunities there. Went from Thyatira to Philippi, yeah, in other words. correct. Hmm. So if that's the case, and there's good reason to believe that that could be the case, then that explains how she got there. We saw in our last conversation how Paul and his group got there, and they all kind of converge on this riverbank, probably about a mile and a half from the city of Philippi proper, and a gospel encounter takes place there. Bill, what are we to take from the fact she's somebody who worshiped God, a businesswoman, Mm. okay, who worshiped God? What are the implications of that? Well, that's maybe the most important thing about her that we're given in the scriptures. The rabbis referred to Gentiles who were either proselytes to Judaism or who were moving in the direction of embracing the faith of Judaism. They described them in two ways. One way was as a worshiper of God. The other way was as a God-fearer. And for an example of a God-fearer, one who's described that way, in Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius, the Roman centurion, that sent to Peter. And Peter came and shared the message with Cornelius, and he and his household came to Christ. And the way he's described, just so you know, is in Acts 10, Cornelius is described as a God-fearer who was devout, who feared God, who gave alms to the Jewish people, and who prayed to God continually. Hmm. Those seem to be some of the characteristics of what would be someone who is on the journey to becoming a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. So it's all in relationship to the God of Israel. That's exactly right. And that's why, even though there are not enough men in Philippi to have a synagogue so that they can have a house of worship where they can worship God, here you have these women who are still following the practices of Judaism, even though there aren't any men there, apparently, to really kind of lead the way or prepare the way. They're just doing it themselves because they want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for those of us who are trying to keep the details straight, because we've gone through a lot of details about who this woman (laughs) is, we have a woman who may or may not be named Lydia because she's from a place called Lydia that has a city in it called Thyatira, who left Thyatira and went to a city called Philippi, which is now where Paul is at. They go outside the city walls on the Sabbath to pray because that is what they would do at that point if there wasn't a synagogue to pray in. Paul goes outside, finds this woman named Lydia, who is showing that she's a worshiper of God because she's outside on the Sabbath 
praying to God next to this river. And she also happens to be a businesswoman who specializes in purple cloth. What's significant about the purple cloth? Well, purple was like a sign of royalty, right? Or expensiveness. The official leadership, governmental leadership of Rome used purple as an accent color on their garments to mark them out as being people of influence and authority. And so purple cloth was really significant. It carried with it a message to be able to deal in that cloth, which was very expensive, would have put Lydia in a very interesting place on the pecking order of the dyer's guilds because she's dealing in the most valued, the most expensive, the most important cloth in Roman thinking and culture. One other detail is that historians tell us that Thyatira had a very significant Jewish community. And so (laughs) it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to imagine that while she was living in Thyatira, Lydia became exposed to that significant Jewish community. That's how she came to become a worshiper of God. And now transplanted into Philippi, she's continuing to faithfully worship and practice Judaism to the extent that she's able to. So where are we in the story right now? Technically, we've already heard that the Lord opened her heart. We'll see that more in the next conversation. But what we know about her is that she's a prepared heart. Mm -hmm. She's a worshiper of God. There have been things in her life, not only geographically that have prepared her and positioned her for this moment, but also spiritually that have prepared her and positioned her for this moment. So that when God opens her heart to respond to the message, this is something that's been coming for some time because God's seemingly been at work in her life for a period of time now. And we'll see that relationship begin for her in a significant way in the next conversation. In our last conversation, Bill, we got into a lot of detail about Lydia, and it almost seemed like we were down in the weeds. Could you just summarize what you feel is most important about this woman so far in our conversations? Well, I think really kind of where we ended up the last conversation brings us there. This woman was a God-fearer who had been under the influence of Judaism to where she was becoming a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God, through that, was preparing her for this encounter with Paul and his team at this river about a mile and a half or so outside of Philippi. I agree with you, Mark. There are a lot of weeds, and a lot of those weeds are conjecture, and we need to kind of constantly be putting that out there. Uh, As Daniel summarized for us in the last conversation, there's conjecture as to whether her name was really Lydia. One scholar said that he was convinced her name was Lydia, and if it was, it probably meant that she was a slave. And if she had been a slave, to have then gotten to the point of being a freed woman, and then a businesswoman, and then a businesswoman who took her business to an entire another country, tells us something about the character of this woman, if all those things are true. Mm -hmm. There's another little bit of speculation Mm -hmm. that says that when Paul wrote his letter to Philippi in Philippians 4, if you'll remember, there were two women who were in conflict with each other, Euodia and Syntyche, and he speaks specifically to his true yoke fellow and asks them to intervene and try to negotiate the problems between these two women. Many scholars believe Lydia was that true yoke fellow Uh that he was referring to. Uh Just the fact that she was in Philippi, she becomes a leading figure in the church at Philippi. It wouldn't surprise us if, in fact, she was that true yoke fellow to arbitrate the problems between these two other women. It's so rich when we read scripture this way to realize, because we just pull these stories out and have them one-dimensional. You know, this is the Mm -hmm. only time we're going to see Lydia, and she did this, and blah, blah, blah. You know, but the reality is, if she was instrumental, which Paul says she was, and that's what scripture tells us, in the founding of of the church at Philippi, then when Paul writes a letter to the Philippians, it makes sense that she'd still be a part of that community. We just kind of forget. So I really appreciate this layering of her identity here. I think what's really jumping out to me just in this whole section from verse 6 all the way through verse 14, which we've been discussing, all of the prep work that God did to get Paul and his team to Philippi. And then it's like we put that on pause for a second and focus in on Lydia and hear about all the prep work that God's done in Lydia to get her next to this river at this time. 
and then how these two stories converge together and God opens her heart to hear this message and respond. And then the whole church blossoms in this particular area because of this connection. Mm -hmm. What I see in this more than anything else is regardless of what the other details are or Mm -hmm. what her name is or whatever, God is at work, Mm. right? The whole Bible is the story about what God is doing in people, through people, in the world. And what we see here is how God orchestrated the steps of Paul, how God orchestrated the life experiences of Lydia, how they converged together for her to hear the good news about what Jesus had done. And as a result of that, the whole church is birthed in this area. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. I think that really makes all kinds of sense that in so many details of life, we don't see God, but all of a sudden he shows up and with with great implications. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be really clearly seen in the text we look at today. So let's move on into the text. We're still in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. We've read it in every conversation so far. So let's read verse 14 again. And Elisa, would you read it for us this time? One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So if I can just kind of build a little bit on your comment a moment ago, Daniel, up to this point in Acts chapter 16, we've seen how God has been working kind of behind the scenes, almost in a little bit of a stealth mode to get Paul and Lydia and these groups together at the same time. Now God's work is right up front and center. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's a pretty powerful statement. What do you make of it? It makes me think of the process of us coming to understand who God is and what Jesus has done for us. You know, I've had many times in my life when I think, well, it's all up to God, you know, to bring me to him or someone to him. Or it's all up to them to respond. And it's a two-way street. You know, as Paul writes about it, whoever planted and whoever watered and whoever caused, it's God that causes the growth. You know, it's a two-way process. It involves both God and the Holy Spirit and our response. And I think we see that clearly here because Paul had a responsibility to share the message, Mm -hmm. right? And he fulfilled his human responsibility. Then God did the work that only he could do in taking this prepared heart and having it blossom under the influence of the gospel. And then once again, we have the human responsibility of Lydia who then believes. Mm -hmm. The Lord opened her heart to believe, but she believes. And so you have this marriage of human responsibility and divine activity coming together at this riverside outside of Philippi, which I think is just really, really cool. Mm -hmm. Does anybody else have in mind echoing Proverbs 16 about, you know, a man planning his way, but the Lord directs his steps? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, it's right there. (laughs) (laughs) Here we see Paul doing his responsibility and her doing her responsibility, but God working through it all to bring her heart to a fullness of embracing Jesus by faith. And I just think it's a marvelous picture. Yeah, and I really see that here because in verse 14, it has both phrases. Mm. She is a worshiper of God. And then later the Lord opened her heart. So there is this like both things are coming together and it's very mysterious, right? Like where does one begin and one end? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But, But we see both there, right? We see her pursuit of God and God's pursuit of her in this Mm. verse. Yeah. I remember reading C.S. Lewis, who said back before he came to Christ and shortly after, when he would hear people talking about their pursuit of God, he felt that it was very much like a mouse pursuing a cat. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Because the one is so much bigger than the other. But at the same time, I think that's what's going on here. You have this mutual coming together that God has prepared the way for and now As Paul does his responsibility, Lydia responds and embraces by faith the message Mm. of the cross. Now, we've been reading verse 14. Now let's layer onto that verse 15, because there's a little piece in here I want us to think about as we wind this conversation down. Mark, could you read verse 15? She, referring to Lydia, she and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree, she says, that I am a true believer in the Lord, come and stay at my home. Hmm. And she urged us until we agreed. Yeah, sometimes it said she prevailed or even constrained us Mm. to come and do that. (laughs) Mm. That it's a very forceful kind of thing that she's really pleading with them, come, 
and let me serve you, that kind of thing. So what do you make of the statement, she and her household were baptized? Well, that depends on some theology that you have. (laughs) (laughs) And this is one of those landmines that depending on how you step on it, (laughs) could really blow up. What are you seeing, Daniel? Where's the landmine? So there's a, a whole spectrum of belief as to baptism. Oftentimes, this is one of those conversations that we as Christians can get really ugly with each other over. And so the fact that her household was baptized, does that mean that they went back and shared the faith with the servants, the children, the other family members, other people in the house? And as a result, they all professed faith and then were baptized? Or did she go back and because she, as kind of the leader of this particular home, had become a Christian and was baptized. The whole family was, in essence, baptized and brought into the community. That's kind of the question. What's very interesting is that this is not the only time in the New Testament we see this language. Mm -hmm. Other people who we see coming to faith with their household are Cornelius in Acts 10, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, Crispus in Acts 18, Aristobulus in Romans 16, Narcissus in Romans 16, and Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1. All of them and their households are pictured as coming to Christ almost as a unit. But I think the most important thing here is that now the gospel is planted on European soil. Mm -hmm. For the first time, European people are professing faith, are coming to Christ, are following the Lord in baptism. And out of all of this, a church is going to be established, the church at Philippi, and that church is going to be the recipient of one of the most beloved letters in all the New Testament, the book of Philippians. And maybe part of this, too, is just the fact that when God shows up, it doesn't just impact one person. It impacts a whole bunch of people. And regardless of who those people are, which we can get tangled in theological arguments about, the point is that when God showed up in Lydia's life, it meant that he showed up in a bunch of other people's lives too. God working in Lydia's life had an incredible impact on her family and her household, her entire community. And that principle carries over to today as well. God's work in your life will have an impact on, as Daniel put it, a bunch of other people's lives as well. Well, We are so glad that you're part of the Discover the Word podcast. You're studying with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And uh, they'll look at another aspect of how community is part of Lydia's story when the conversation continues. But first, let me say thanks for a couple of things. First of all, thanks for studying with the Discover the Word group. Having you at the table is always front of mind for us, and our prayer is that you are drawn closer to the Lord because of being part of this group. And then second, I'd also like to say thanks to those who partner with us financially. Your gifts make it possible for Our Daily Bread Ministries resources to reach people in over 150 different countries. When you give, you're helping us make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. You can partner with us in this important mission by giving online at discovertheword.org. And now back to this study of the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Do you have the gift of hospitality? That's actually listed as a spiritual gift (laughs) in Romans 12, the gift of hospitality. Do you have the gift of hospitality? I don't think so. I think I have the gift of seclusion. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, I I know that there is a unique gift of hospitality, but in some ways, like with evangelism or faith or giving, I think all of us have an invitation to be hospitable. There may be certain elements of it that we're better at than others. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm really not a very good cook. And, you know, sometimes people make me tired. Ooh, was that just awful to say? Anyway, but (laughs) I like to share and I like to invite people in to enjoy what I might have to offer. So we kind of like stereotypically look at hospitality when it may be a little bit broader than we imagine. And even in what you were describing, a lot of times we look at it as providing a meal or a place to stay or 
having some kind of meeting in our space, in our living room or whatever. Comac 101. Yeah. yeah but, <laughs> yeah. but I think the spirit of hospitality, when I think about that, which is why I would say, Mart, you actually are pretty hospitable yes. and same with you, Bill, is because when you interact with someone who is hospitable, there's a kindness that you kind of feel expressed in them. There's a graciousness that they have. They're genuinely interested in your perspective on things and ask good questions. So I think kind of the spirit of hospitality or the gift as you ask the question, the gift of hospitality is much more the way we kind of make people feel. I think I think you're being generous. I understand the spirit of welcome. And I think, yeah, we can all have that. We hopefully are working toward that or even experiencing it. But in life, Absolutely. I've just seen certain men and women yep. who just rise to the top when it comes to hospitality and say, hey, they got it. And I think that's the gift. I mean, it, it's like Elisa said, I think all of us are challenged to share our faith, but there are some people who are more gifted of the Holy Spirit in that area. And I see people who are gifted in whether it's evangelism or in hospitality, and I feel so inadequate next mm -hmm. to them. But like Elisa mm -hmm. said, that doesn't mean I can't learn how to be more hospitable or more welcoming to others. Mm -hmm. I think all of us can learn, but I think some of us are uniquely gifted mm -hmm. to be able to express that in more remarkable ways. I think the reason this conversation becomes so important is because one of the key elements of the body of Christ that we are part of is that we live in community. And as a community, community functions better when we're hospitable to each other, <laughs> when we're more welcoming and yeah. inclusive. Can you assume, though, that we all live in community? I can assume that we're supposed to because the body of Christ is described communally. I mean, you look in Paul's letters to the churches, we tend, because we're Westerners, mm -hmm. we tend to individualize everything in the Scripture. Oh, that's to me. And yet most of the time, the pronouns he uses are plural. Mm -hmm. But people live in so many different conditions and mm -hmm. close to one another, far from one another, living out in a rural setting. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. There's a lot of isolation in our world. And I think where I go with it is, you know, maybe we were created to be in community. And so that's, to me, rather than a ought, it becomes a desire of, oh, I need to acknowledge that within myself mm -hmm. and within others that I'm in relationship with. You know, we really do need each other, even if we don't have access to each other. So how can I live in a way that I welcome connection or that I seek connection? Mm -hmm. that, that changes how I spend my time. Okay. Yeah. And I think what you're saying, Elisa, about us being made for community is evidenced all the way back in Genesis mm -hmm. chapter 2 when the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone, mm -hmm. that we are at our best together. Mm -hmm. So our concept of community then is very flexible, right, as to yeah. the numbers. It mm -hmm. can be because, I mean, you think about this little group of women sitting by a riverside outside of Philippi. They were a community who were coming there to do something together to worship God and to worship specifically Jehovah. Mm -hmm. And it is there that they encounter another community, this group of Paul and Silas and Luke and these others that are traveling with them. And these two communities together function as a new community. And that new community is going to establish in Philippi a community of faith who will function as a very different kind of community. So I think we're seeing community at a lot of different levels in Acts chapter 16 as we're looking at the life and influence of Lydia, the seller of purple cloth. So that gets us back into our story. I hope that wasn't too abrupt. But where we see her really mm -hmm. showing hospitality is in verse 15. And uh, Daniel, would you read verse 15 for us again? Yeah, sure. It says, when she and her household were baptized, she urged mm -hmm. us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. That's mm -hmm. hospitality. And it's hospitality almost kind of in the Home Act 101 way that you <laughs> joked earlier, Lisa, <laughs> because she's welcoming these men. There's at least four of them. Mm -hmm. She's inviting them into her home to stay, to take lodging, no doubt to be fed. I mean, that mm -hmm. was part of hospitality in the ancient world, that if you welcome someone into your home, you made sure that they were 
well-fed to the degree that you were able to do that. And so here we see layers of community and hospitality kind of overlaying one another in what is a really beautiful picture of her heart, who even though we'll see, as we've seen already, we'll see her as a person of influence, here we see her really taking on almost the role of a servant. You know, that's interesting. As we're talking, I'm realizing that sometimes hospitality means maybe allowing myself to be uncomfortable so that someone Mm -hmm. else is comfortable. You know, I don't have to make the best whipped meringue pie, but I can share what I have. So it's all kinds of things, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we have to come up with a prescription or a recipe for hospitality. I think a lot of it boils down to generosity, Mm. whether it's being generous with our time, generous with our resources, generous with whatever God has entrusted to us. Mm -hmm. One of the ways we steward that is by knowing when it's wise Mm -hmm. to give that away to someone else. Mm -hmm. And that's part of being hospitable as well, because that declares to that other person worth and value because we're willing to be generous with Mm -hmm. them and to help them in that way. And that's what I see Lydia doing with her home, her resources, whatever it is she has, she's now willing to invest it into this group of men who up until about 30 seconds ago were total strangers. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other realities of hospitality is sometimes it requires us to take a risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talked about being uncomfortable, Elisa. It would have been somewhat risky in the ancient world for an apparently single woman to be welcoming a group of men into her house. Mm. Uh, Now, she's not in her house alone. She has a household that's there with her. But but now she's welcoming these men in, and there's a risk involved in that, isn't there? Sure, there is. And it reminds me of even some of the situations that Mart was describing for those of us who either have been living isolated or for very painful reasons have been isolated from others. And yeah. sometimes just opening ourselves up to friendship again or relationship mm-hmm. in some way is a huge risk. And I'm not talking about inviting people into my home. I mean, just opening up to like being okay with potentially pursuing a friendship, right? Like, like even that can be so painful and scary for people that have been hurt really bad or burned in some way. Or grieving. Yeah. Yeah. And so even that might be part of the invitation here is considering not, hey, I don't need to invite people to spend the night tonight and bake them cookies, but maybe a part of God's invitation through this story is to consider being open to community again after experiencing a really rough situation in a previous community. And, and that's yeah. a process too, isn't yeah. it? I mean, with Lydia, yeah. I mean, we can see there's some background to her story. Mm-hmm. And now she opens her heart, but it's the Lord who had been working in her now who she probably would look back at later and say, you know what, the Lord did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, for her, her journey started in Thyatira where historians say there was a substantial Jewish community where she became introduced to Judaism and became a worshiper of God or a God-fearer, a Gentile who was coming towards Judaism. And now she sees the fruition of Judaism and the message of Jesus, and she embraces it wholeheartedly, even to the point where she could say to Paul, "'If you have judged me to be a believer in the Lord,' come and stay at my house. Mm -hmm. And so we see this kind of mutual generosity. These guys are taking a risk by coming to this river and seeing this group of women. Now Lydia's taking a risk by saying, wait a minute, I'm part of your community now. Come, stay with me, let me serve you. I just think there's a beautiful reciprocity in all of that that speaks to the willingness to be vulnerable that you're talking about, Daniel. helpful reminder that we are all created for community and we may do it differently and have different needs but going it alone isn't ever really the best option you need others and others need you well one more segment of this conversation about Lydia to go and in it we'll hear about prison and escape More people in Philippi believing in Jesus. And Paul and Silas moving on. How that's all part of Lydia's story is what we'll discover. But first, let's peek ahead at what we'll be studying together on the next Discover the Word podcast. How much do you all like waiting? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's my favorite thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I'm a very impatient person. Yeah. Can I make it more excruciating for you? Go for okay, it. Okay. Now, when was the last time you found yourself waiting in silence when you didn't have your phone, mm. you didn't have a book, mm-hmm. there's no music to listen to, no other distraction, no one around? All you had to do was just sit there. Mm-hmm. I don't know about for you all, but for me, when I end up in those spaces, there's like a little bit of anxiousness that I begin to feel mm-hmm. and my mind just starts going crazy. Mm-hmm. I start thinking of things that I didn't do 10 years ago, <laughs> right, or whatever. It's like our brains just fill that space with so many thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so today I've got some really good news The Bible encourages us to wait (laughs) in silence for God. And somehow that's a really good thing. And so that's what we're going to explore. All right. You up for the challenge? Waiting in silent rest for God on the next Discover the Word podcast. But now let's listen as Bill and Elisa and Mart and Daniel wrap up this series of conversations about Acts 16 and the story of Lydia. When I was a pastor, one of the funeral traditions that used to really, really bother me was when I would show up at the funeral home or when the funeral people would come to the church for the actual funeral service, they would hand me a little three by five card with all of the particulars about the person. And I always felt that it was really unfortunate to in a sense, reduce a person's life to a (laughs) three-by-five card because people are so much more than that. They're so much more complex than that, and their stories are more complex than that. And Mm -hmm. I think, in a sense, what the Scriptures give us about Lydia, who we've been talking about in these conversations, is kind of like the (laughs) three-by-five card. But, Elisa, you've talked about the fact that we're seeing layers in her life and in her story as we've tried to dig into it a little bit. What are some of the layers that we've seen about this woman's life? Well, one of the things that popped at the beginning is we've always called her Lydia, you know, historically and traditionally, but you helped us see that she is a woman who moved from Thyatira, which is a place within the province of Lydia, and she moved to Philippi. But some scholars think that maybe this phrase Lydia is actually calling her as a woman, a lady from Lydia, like you'd say the French woman or the English woman or the American woman. So maybe that was her name, but not necessarily. I kind of lean toward the fact that it probably was because the text says a woman named Lydia, Mm -hmm. which to me has a little more weight than the speculation of scholars. But I do think it's good to explore some of those ideas because it gives us a more three-dimensional look at at this person. What are some other things we've seen about Lydia so far? Well, the very first thing that we read about her after her potential name, Lydia, (laughs) is that she's a worshiper of God. And so there's a pursuit in her life of God Mm. well before she ever meets Paul or gets to this point in the story. So there's already some things in her life that when this story is being compiled later and talked about with her, it's like, oh yeah, she was a worshiper of God. And with the implication of the God of Israel, right? Yeah. 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 We're also told that she's a businesswoman and apparently she has a fairly substantial business because she's got a household. She's got a house large enough to include not only her household, but these traveling evangelists who have come and introduced her to the gospel of Jesus. And that would have been somewhat unusual in the ancient world. Women weren't typically business people as a general rule. And so we've seen her take a very significant position in her community as something of a leader by her role as a business person. We saw her as a person who seems to have influenced her household to embrace the same gospel message that she embraced. And then she prevailed upon Paul and his team to come and stay at her house. And it appears, and we're going to see this substantiated in a minute, it appears that her 
home becomes the home of the Philippian church. And if that's true, that really gives some significance to when the letter to the church at Philippi lands in Philippi, it lands in her house. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that she's still having this kind of ongoing influence, even when Paul is no longer there, but he's now writing a letter to them. And I just think that's really rich. But after she prevails on them to come and stay with her, what happens next in Acts chapter 16? It's a really interesting story. It just says one day, so sometime later, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we don't know how much time has transpired. Yep. They, meaning at least Paul, maybe Lydia now, maybe some others, mm-hmm. going to a place of prayer, which was how the story was set up with Lydia as well. They meet a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. And then verse 17, while she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaimed to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul very much annoyed, which always stood out to me. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like Paul, she's helping, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah, right. So Paul, out of his annoyance, it seems, turns to her and says, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour, which was great for the slave girl, but not good for the owners who now are going to lose the money that they were making with her fortune telling. So as a result, Paul and others are stripped and beaten and put in jail. Then we have that famous event in Acts 16, where the now famous though unnamed, Philippian jailer comes in, Mm -hmm. and he ends up coming to Christ along with his household, just Mm -hmm. like Lydia with her household. And what happens next in the story is that the city leaders try to send them away, and Paul won't let them. Paul says, listen, we're Roman citizens, and you beat us and threw us in prison without cause. And they have to actually come over and apologize to them, and they end up begging them to leave the city. That's where we pick up our story again in verse 40. Mark, would you read verse 40 for us? When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia, and there they met with the believers and encouraged them once more, and then they left town. Okay, so this seems to really kind of solidify the idea that Lydia's home has become kind of the hub of Christian activity in Philippi because before they leave town, they want to go back and they want to visit with the other believers. And where do they go? They go to Lydia's house. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because apparently that's where the believers hang out. And Mm -hmm. so they go there and they meet with them and they encourage them before they leave. This, I think, signals to us that what we have seen as being a part of Lydia's story up to this point is by no means the end of her story or the end of her influence. With her home serving as the hub of the Christian activity there in Philippi, I think it becomes very clear that her influence will be ongoing for who knows how many decades to come, even to the point of being recipients of that letter to the Philippians. Wouldn't it be a neat exercise to read Acts 16? And then go read the book of Philippians. Mm. Because, you know, all of scripture you can access through different doorways. You know, you can come from up above, you can come from sideways, Mm. you can come from underneath. But to come and look at this story as a story from Paul's perspective, from Luke's perspective, from Lydia's perspective, it just helps us understand our great God and how he works so personally and yet so globally and invites us to participate. I think that's a really good challenge, Elise, and I would like to kind of piggyback on that by encouraging our listeners. We're in the final of this set of conversations. Once we're done, as soon as you have the time to do it, sit down and read through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi in Lydia's house. And having now this context of how this church was founded and how it began and who some of the principal people are there. No doubt by this point, the Philippian jailer and his household have glommed on to this group of Christ followers that are trying to establish a beachhead for the gospel in Philippi. So with all of that background, read the letter to Philippi and see what that letter may teach you about not only this group of believers, but also how Paul feels about them. Mm -hmm. I personally find the letter to the Philippians as one of the most heartwarming and touching and in some ways moving of all of Paul's letters. Does it seem that way to you guys also? 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that's jumping out to me too is typically when I read even the book of Acts, I focus in on the work of the disciples and then I focus in on the work of Paul. And sometimes I forget that if Paul hadn't met some people like Lydia and their lives hadn't been changed, we would never really be reading about Paul because every time he showed up, he would have said something and nothing would have happened and then gone somewhere else (laughs) to say something. But actually what gives even their stories meaning and weight is the fact that people like Lydia heard what they were saying and embraced it to such an extent that it transformed not only her, her household, but the whole community. Mm. So that strikes me too. Sometimes I get so focused on the, you know, the figureheads of the faith that we forget that it's the people like Lydia that really put legs to the faith Mm. and made a difference by sharing it not only with their household, Mm. but with those around them too. Not only do we tend to focus on Paul and some of the figureheads to the exclusion of people like Lydia. But I heard one time that instead of calling this book the Acts of the Apostles, it ought to be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because mm-hmm. yeah. we've seen very profound work of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. throughout this story as we've looked at it together in these conversations. And I think, again, Elisa, you reminded us in an earlier conversation that Paul wrote to Corinth that Paul sowed and Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the increase. Mm -hmm. Anything that we're going to accomplish, ultimately it's empowered by the Holy Spirit to be made effective. And if we just focus on, well, Paul did this, or even Lydia did this, we lose the fact that it's the work of the Holy Spirit underneath and through those human instruments that really accomplishes God's work in the world, not only then, but even today as well. important reminder that the Holy Spirit is at work, seemingly often behind the scenes of the people and stories we read in the Bible and also in our lives today. Well, you've been listening to another episode of the Discover the Word podcast, this one about the impact of an influential woman in the early church in Philippi named Lydia. Mark Dehan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day have been your study partners. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.